0: The Persistence of Memory, written by Colin Brake, read by Chris Addison. The boy looked in astonishment at the impossible room, which was somehow inside the old-fashioned police telephone box he had just entered. He was determined to imprint every detail on his memory. The room was circular, with a central column filled with bars of golden light, A six-sided control panel covered with dials, readouts and levers encircled the lit column and a couple of the panels were topped with screens. Around the walls of the room was a sort of observation platform which housed bookshelves, trinkets and a chalk blackboard on which the single word Spangles was written. Go on then, say it. Everyone does. The speaker was a man with a shock of grey hair, a well-lined face and the fiercest eyebrows the boy had ever seen outside of a horror comic. CJ – he preferred to use his initials rather than his given name – was perhaps not your usual 14-year-old boy from South London. While most of the other boys at school collected and swapped football cards or superhero comics, CJ had a more curious hobby. He collected mysteries. He had already filled three large scrapbooks with magazine and newspaper cuttings about mysterious events and places, and it was the pursuit of a new one that had led him here to this... whatever it was. The man with the eyebrows was gesticulating with his hand, blah, blah, bigger on the inside, blah, blah. Come on, lad, make an effort. It's called the TARDIS. Somehow, CJ managed to find his voice. It's a spaceship, isn't it? No, more than that. A time ship. The stranger stopped his hand-waving and looked impressed. CJ had first seen the man about ten minutes earlier in Mr. Singh's newsagent. Just for a change, Slade's Merry Christmas Everybody had been on the radio. CJ was properly sick of the six-year-old tune. He hoped it would finally be forgotten about by next year. Trying to ignore the song's long, loud cry of It's Christmas! CJ had been eyeing up a newspaper's front page, It proclaimed to have an exclusive feature on the Loch Ness Monster with brand new pictures of the monster itself. CJ knew he had to add it to his scrapbook, but he didn't have any money. The stranger had been in the shop buying a packet of sweets, some fizzy orange spangles. He was obviously a regular, as Mr. Singh had called him, Doctor. CJ picked up the paper he wanted and was trying to tuck it inside his jacket when he heard the doctor say something peculiar. He was telling Mr. Singh that he made a point of coming here to buy spangles, but when Mr. Singh pointed out that other shops sold the sweets, the doctor had corrected him. By here, he meant the year, not the shop, he had said. You try getting these in the 21st century, he told the shopkeeper. CJ had been so shocked that he had dropped the paper he was attempting to steal. To his surprise, the stranger had walked over and picked it up for him. Here, he said handing C.J. the paper and a ten-pence coin with a knowing smile. C.J. had been surprised at the man's generous gesture, but not as surprised as he was when he looked down at the coin in his hand. The coin was dated 1987, eight years in the future. Forgetting the newspaper, C.J. had pulled the shop door open and run outside. There had been no sign of the mysterious doctor in either direction, so C.J. had checked the alleyway behind the shops. As he rounded the corner, he was surprised to see the old-fashioned police box blocking the road. The doctor was stepping into it. CJ was not particularly sporty at the best of times, but he had set off towards it like an Olympic sprinter. The light on the top of the police box had begun to flash, and an unearthly mechanical noise had filled the air. To CJ's astonishment, the box appeared to be fading from view. For a split second, he thought he might pass straight through it like a ghost then the doors had solidified and he had crashed through them, rolling into the impossible space beyond. As he staggered to his feet, C.J. had found himself facing the Doctor in the enormous circular room. The coin you gave me in Mr. Singh's, it was from the future, he said with growing confidence, and so are you. He ventured a little further into the room. The steady hum of what sounded like a great engine came from somewhere deep below, What kind of a pudding brain throws himself at a dematerializing TARDIS? The doctor asked, shaking his head. CJ shrugged and smiled cautiously. A curious one? He offered his hand for the doctor to shake. My name's CJ. The doctor sighed, ignored CJ's hand, and began studying one of the instrument panels. I suppose I'll have to take you right back to 1979, he muttered. I could just use the fast return switch, I suppose. He reached for a large red lever. "'Wait!' shouted CJ. The doctor stopped and looked at him. "'It's Christmas. A time for generosity. Can't you take me on one quick trip? I'll bet you could get me back to this exact time and place afterwards, couldn't you?' The doctor couldn't help but smile. Adult humans often frustrated him with their closed-mindedness, but he had always found younger humans to be much more interesting and interested. "'Okay, since it's Christmas.' One trip, anywhere in time and space, the doctor said. That's the deal. I have a friend who usually travels with me, but she's off enjoying something called an end-of-tongue Christmas party, so I'm at a loose end. Where's it to be? CJ thought for a moment of all the clippings in his scrapbooks. He'd been collecting them for years. Tales of Bigfoot or Sasquatch, of yeti in the Himalayas and panthers roaming Dartmoor. And it wasn't just strange beasts he was interested in. He had clippings on the Bermuda Triangle. Space travellers on Inca temples, UFO sightings over Roswell. How about the Mari Celeste, CJ finally suggested, remembering the tale of the mysteriously abandoned ship found adrift in 1872. Boring, said the Doctor. That was the Daleks. Um, Stonehenge, when it was being built? Been there, done that, said the Doctor, and that's no mystery, just aliens. Okay then, how about the Loch Ness Monster, CJ offered, crossing his fingers for luck. Well... There was the Zygons' pet garrison, which turned up in the Thames that time, muttered the Doctor. Has that happened yet? I'm always a bit vague on the dates. I don't know anything about Zygons, replied CJ, but I do know there were lots of new Nessie sightings reported this summer. Loch Ness in the summer of 1979 it is then, declared the Doctor, turning and setting the controls. Let's go and find ourselves a wee timorous beastie, shall we? When the doors to the TARDIS opened again, Mr Singh's newsagent was nowhere to be seen. The police box had materialized beside a vast expanse of calm blue water, which CJ guessed was the famous Loch Ness. Tree-covered hills rose up from the opposite side of the lake, and further away, CJ could see the remains of a castle towering above the water. Scotland in August, the doctor sighed as they stepped outside, closing the door of the TARDIS behind him. Nowhere finer. It had been midday when CJ had entered the TARDIS, but here it was beginning to grow dark. The doctor started off towards the water's edge and C.J. hurried after him. A short distance away, C.J. could see a small encampment, a couple of tents pitched around a campfire. A young man of around twenty emerged from one of the tents. Hi, said the camper with a friendly expression. Are you looking for the old girl? Old girl, said C.J. Nessie. The youth, who gave his name as Robbie, explained that he and his friends were Nessie hunters. Every year they came to Loch Ness and set up a camp here hoping to spot the mysterious monster. Robbie's two friends had gone into the nearest town for supplies, leaving him alone on watch. Have you ever seen the monster? asked CJ, sitting down by the fire. Not myself, confessed Robbie, but my friend Al saw something just the other night. He managed to get a photo. The young Nessie hunter reached into his pocket and produced a Polaroid photograph. The doctor glanced at it, narrowing his fierce eyebrows, then passed it on to CJ. The photograph had been taken at night, and despite the camera's built-in flash, The resulting image was far from clear. Where exactly was this taken? asked the doctor. Not far from the camp, Robbie answered, pointing to where the edge of the lock curved away from them. I'll show you, he added brightly, getting to his feet. Robbie led the doctor and CJ to a ridge of land that jutted into the lock. The three of them looked out over the smooth water. A ripple appeared on the surface. Is it me or is something moving out there? CJ asked, his voice trembling. I see it too, said Robbie excitedly. Would you look at that now? The water was definitely moving a short distance from where they stood. Waves appeared, small at first, then larger and larger. Then something huge exploded out of the water and CJ almost jumped into the air in fright. Whatever the thing was, it immediately dived beneath the surface again before anyone could get a good look at it. Robbie looked like he might explode from excitement. ''Did you see that?'' he cried, turning to the Doctor and CJ with his eyes wide. Before Robbie could go on, it happened again. This time, they got a better look at the enormous creature. CJ spotted a long neck and scaly skin as the creature reared up, sending cascades of water in all directions before it returned once more to the deep. Robbie looked at them triumphantly. ''See, she is real!'' She looked like some kind of dinosaur. A plesiosaurus, CJ corrected him, his heart racing. A genus of extinct large marine reptiles that lived during the early part of the Jurassic period. He had discovered the secret of Nessie. This day would need a whole scrapbook of its own. Robbie ran closer to the edge of the water. Quick, get the camera, he called back. CJ saw an expensive-looking Polaroid on a box beside Robbie's folding chair. Robbie, get back, warned the doctor. But he was too late. The creature burst up from the depths for a third time, unleashing a wave that knocked the poor Nessie Hunter off his feet. Robbie slipped and fell into the water, splashing wildly. Before either the Doctor or CJ could do or say anything, something peculiar happened. An explosion of light, as if a flare had been set off, followed by a strange electronic noise. CJ blinked, seeing flashes before his eyes, but the effect quickly faded. With surprise, he noticed that there was no longer any sign of the sea monster in the loch. It had completely disappeared. All that was left was poor Robbie swimming with difficulty in the rough waters. The doctor had already moved to grab an emergency lifebuoy from a nearby post. He threw it to Robbie and, with CJ's help, hauled the lad back to solid ground. The doctor then quickly checked that Robbie hadn't sustained any injuries and determined that he was fine, if rather wet and cold. Get yourself dry and keep away from the loch, the Doctor said, striding off. Come on, he urged CJ. Where are we going? Back to the TARDIS. CJ wondered if time travel always involved this much running. Puffing a little, he jogged as quickly as he could up the hill after the Doctor. Inside the TARDIS, the Doctor was already at the controls, running some checks. As I suspected, the Doctor told CJ, who was leaning on the console, trying to catch his breath, there's a residual trace of Artron energy. Which means what? When something travels through the space-time vortex, it leaves a trail of Artron particles, explained the Doctor. He pulled down a lever and flicked a couple of switches, and this particular trail leads here. The Doctor activated a viewscreen, which showed them grey, metallic walls. Where are we? According to the TARDIS, we're inside a very large spaceship, which is sitting on the bottom of the lock, the Doctor told CJ. There's an alien spaceship at the bottom of Loch Ness, C.J. said with excitement despite his fear. What kind of alien spaceship? Friendly aliens? Not friendly aliens? Not sure, said the Doctor, frowning. But there's one thing I do know. This is the location of the device that took that poor creature from the loch. Some kind of primitive time scoop. He started to walk towards the doors. And we need to find whoever is responsible. The Doctor and C.J. stepped out of the TARDIS into a metal-walled corridor. There was a cold efficiency to the design, flat grey panels and silvery steel mouldings with muted blue lighting. The corridor was gently curved, reminding CJ of his favourite TV programme. "Bit Star Trek, isn't it? suggested CJ, peering round the corridor as they walked along it. If you say so, replied the Doctor, it's more reminiscent of a Dalek ship if you ask me. Abruptly the Doctor stopped and turned to CJ with a finger to his lips. Ahead of them, The corridor opened up into a cavernous area four or five times the size of the TARDIS control room. Mammoth equipment filled the space, power lines and control panels attached to something that looked like an oversized desk lamp with a long, gun-like barrel where the bulb should be. That's the time scoop, whispered the doctor, just as I thought. The corridor led out to a circular walkway, which ran all the way round the wall of the chamber, a ramp on each side descending to ground level. Along the walkway were alcoves containing display cases full of curios and collectibles. Two figures appeared on either side of the walkway, large security robots with what looked like weapons built into their arms. Their heads were spherical, capable of swivelling a full 360 degrees, and they moved slowly and purposefully in opposite directions across the chamber. The doctor beckoned CJ into one of the alcoves, and they ducked down to hide behind a display case. Are they in charge? whispered CJ. The doctor shook his head. I doubt it. They match the design of the ship. I'd say they're just automated crew. I'm more interested in whoever wrote their programs. One of the patrolling robots passed their hiding place and returned to its starting position. Then both robots made a whirring noise and stopped moving as if powering down. Whatever happens, keep out of sight, said the doctor firmly. Then he moved quietly out of the alcove and ran down one of the ramps. CJ wondered where the doctor was going. The seconds that ticked by in his absence felt like an eternity. When seconds then became minutes, CJ began to wonder if the doctor was ever coming back. He couldn't see anything from his hiding place. Perhaps if he just crept carefully to the walkway, he'd be able to see what was going on. Remembering the doctor's warning, CJ cautiously crawled out from behind the display case and onto the walkway. The vast hall was empty, with no sign of life. On the floor below, CJ could see some screens which were connected to the machine the doctor had called a time scoop, dozens of them, all showing different scenes. CJ gulped with excitement as he realised what the screens were showing. Not different TV stations, but different places in history. Even from this distance, he could make out dinosaurs on one, and something that looked like a half-built pyramid on another, Curiosity quickly got the better of him, and he edged forward to get a closer look. Keeping an eye out for any movement, CJ stepped down the nearest ramp towards the screens. As he got closer, he saw more details. A Roman army marching, a pirate ship, some kind of giant wheel on the banks of the Thames. It wasn't just the past on the screens, he realized. It was the future, too. One of the screens showed some kind of invasion— At first, C.J. thought the invaders were zombies, but then he realised they were shop dummies, moving mannequins with concealed weapons on their wrists. "'Now what do we have here?' said a strange voice in sing-song tones. "'Did I pick up a hitchhiker when I scooped up my Nessie?' C.J. spun round and saw that a peculiar man had appeared behind him. He was powerfully built and wore a richly decorated scarlet robe which was tied with a paisley-patterned scarf as a belt.' On his feet were practical-looking boots, similar to the chunky-soled shoes that the Doctor was wearing. Unlike the robots, which matched the ship in design and feel, the Stranger seemed out of place here. I'm lost, said CJ, lamely. I rather think you are, agreed the Stranger. Perhaps I should send you back to the Jurassic era with our scaly friend? I don't think that's a very good idea, said an angry voice. C.J. looked past the stranger and was delighted to see the doctor descending from the opposite ramp. You can't go round sending innocent people through time, said the doctor, clearly furious, as he reached the ground floor. Who are you? Where did you get this time technology? The man just looked at the doctor and laughed. He had wide blue eyes that seemed to sparkle with amusement, and C.J. could see deep laughter lines on his face. Whoever he was, he was clearly someone who found plenty to laugh at in life. "'Me?' he asked, pointing at his own chest. "'I'm just a traveller and a collector, much like yourself.' "'A collector? Me?' The doctor was clearly surprised by the turn of the conversation. He shook his head and looked over at CJ. "'Are you all right, CJ?' CJ tried hard to sound like he wasn't afraid. "'Never better, doctor.' "'Good,' said the doctor. "'Listen to me, and I promise I'll get you out of here. "'Oh, don't make promises you can't keep, doctor.' warned the stranger. The doctor turned and approached the man, anger burning in his eyes. Now listen here. You need to shut down this time scoop and stop meddling with things you don't understand. Time travel is not a game. You don't play with time. You don't scoop up marine creatures from millions of years ago and drop them into Loch Ness for a laugh. The illegal time scoop operator laughed again. Who's going to stop me? The Time Lords, aren't they too busy hiding from their own shadows these days? The doctor suddenly seemed unsettled. What do you know about the Time Lords? He demanded, Oh, Doctor, you change your face but you don't change your ways. You're just as naive and boring as you've ever been. Don't you ever learn? Meddling is always fun. What's the point in anything if there's no mischief? CJ was shocked to see the color draining from the doctor's face. It can't be you, he stammered. You're not the only one wearing a new face, Doctor, said the man, spinning round as if showing off a new outfit. It's me, Mortimer." What did you call me once? The meddling monk? Well, I've ditched the monk look. You could say I've got a new habit, he laughed. You get it? Habit. (laughs) He giggled again, then realised he was laughing alone. "Hmm? Eh, eh, Never mind. Suddenly, the security robots appeared again, this time at the top of each ramp. Robots, escort our guests to the cells, ordered the monk. The robots moved forwards and CJ flinched, expecting a cold metallic hand to grab him at any moment. But nothing happened. Hey, what do you think you're doing? CJ opened his eyes and saw that the two robots were holding the monk captive instead of the doctor. Sorry, old friend, the doctor said, a hint of amusement in his voice. I'm afraid you've got a mutiny on your hands. These boys work for me now. He waved something that looked like a rather over-designed multi-tool in the monk's face. You never were very good at positronic brains, were you, Em? Took me about ten seconds with my sonic screwdriver to hack into this ship's computer and replace you as commander. You really are a killjoy, aren't you? muttered the monk, raising his hands in defeat. Fine. You win, Doctor. But the Doctor wasn't finished. What mischief were you planning with this time scoop? he demanded. The monk shrugged. I hadn't really decided, he said airily. He explained that he had come across the abandoned ship far in the distant future and had decided to take it for himself. I thought I might use it to depopulate this little planet that everyone values so much and offer it up to the highest bidder. The Rutans, the Sontarans, maybe even the Daleks. There's no shortage of races that would pay a handsome price for planet Earth. The doctor looked furious again as CJ wondered aloud. What happens now, doctor? Are you going to hand him over to the police? He seemed to consider this for a moment. Well, I could bring in the shadow proclamation, I suppose, said the doctor. CJ saw the monk's grin fade rapidly at the suggestion, and the doctor shook his head. No, I couldn't do that to him. The doctor explained to CJ that the monk was a fellow Time Lord, whatever that was, which meant that he too had a TARDIS, After a quick search of the room, they found the monk's time machine disguised as a plain white wardrobe hidden behind the time scoop machinery. To CJ's surprise, the doctor decided that the best thing would be to let the monk go. But we can't just let him get away with it, CJ cried. He won't, said the doctor firmly. He returned to his TARDIS, then came back carrying a box. Inside was a creature that looked like a giant worm. The monk looked scared. Not a memory worm, Doctor, please. You can't wipe my mind with that thing. I think it would be best if you forget all about this ship, said the Doctor firmly. One little bite from our friend here and you won't remember a thing. He beckoned one of the service robots over. It picked up the worm from the box and carried it across to the monk's neck. With his short-term memory now a complete blank, the monk was quickly bundled by the Doctor back into his wardrobe TARDIS, The doctor set the controls, and a few moments later, the monk's TARDIS disappeared from view. What are you going to do about this ship and the time scoop? asked CJ. It's a bit dangerous to leave it here, isn't it? The doctor agreed. Extremely. I'm going to program the robots to pilot it into the sun. That should see it safely destroyed. CJ nodded. I wonder what happened to the original crew, he said, hoping the Doctor would give an answer that wasn't too sad. The shielding on the scoop is a bit suspect, said the Doctor. I suspect there may have been a leakage of Artron energy causing a time disturbance that removed the crew from their own timelines. He sighed, sounding tired. Time is a very dangerous thing to play around with, CJ. The monk is lucky we came across him when we did. This thing might well have blown up in his face and caused a major time quake. The Doctor stopped and patted CJ on the shoulder. ''But never mind that, eh?'' he said with a small smile. ''Time to get you home, I think.'' Inside the TARDIS control room, the Doctor pottered around the central console, flicking switches and checking readouts. CJ watched him carefully. He couldn't stop thinking about the memory worm. The more he thought about it, the more he became convinced that the Doctor would use it on him too. This whole fantastic adventure could be stolen from his memory, and he'd never even know it. While the Doctor was busy flying the TARDIS, CJ pulled out the notebook that he kept in his jacket pocket and began to sketch and make notes. When he heard a change in the engine sound, which he now knew meant the TARDIS was landing, he carefully slipped the notebook back into his pocket. Here we are then, said the Doctor. London, December 24th, 1979, right? We've materialised about 30 seconds after we left. CJ's eyes drifted to the box containing the memory worm. Are you going to... he began. Wipe your mind, the doctor laughed, but not entirely convincingly. No, no. Well, not with the memory worm. That's a bit of a blunt instrument, but I do need to blur some of the details. He pressed a single bony finger to the middle of CJ's forehead. You saw glimpses of the future on the monk's screens, and no one should know too much about their own future. C.J. blinked, his thoughts a fuzzy mess. He wasn't even sure where he was for a moment. Looking around, he eventually realised he was standing in the alley behind Mr. Singh's newsagent. A fading echo of a strange wheezing sound was in the air, then all was silent. Shaking his head to clear the cobwebs, C.J. began walking home. He had a half-memory of something incredible happening, something to do with a blue box and time travel and someone called the doctor? Had it really happened, or had he read about it somewhere? The more he tried to remember the details, the fainter the memory became, until it felt more like a dream than a real event. But that night, as he was getting into bed, CJ found something peculiar in his notebook. There were some scribbled notes about the Loch Ness Monster, which CJ couldn't remember writing, next to a sketch of an old-fashioned police box. It was labelled with the words, time and space machine, and two more words written at the bottom of the page, the doctor. What on earth could it mean? It was a mystery, but something totally new, not like the other things in CJ's scrapbooks. This deserved a whole new scrapbook of its own. CJ woke up the next morning, Christmas morning, and leapt downstairs, eager to open his presents. Tearing open the first one, he found a brand new scrapbook, just as he'd hoped. For your next set of mysteries, Clive,' his nan said, smiling at the elated expression on CJ's face. When all the presents had been opened, CJ retreated to his room to survey his new belongings. A cassette player, some felt tips, a book about ancient myths. He'd done very well this year, but the best present hadn't come gift-wrapped at all. Opening his new scrapbook and using one of his new felt tips, CJ labelled the cover The Mystery of the Doctor and the Blue Box by Clive J. Swift. It was the start of a fascination that would last for many years to come. Soon Clive's scrapbook would become a collection of cuttings and photos, of sightings and mentions, the first of a dozen scrapbooks that eventually became a website a sight that would one day be discovered by a girl named Rose Tyler after she too met a mysterious doctor who travelled in a blue police box. As the TARDIS spun through the time vortex, something stirred in the depths of the doctor's mind, a fleeting memory, something Rose had told him about when he'd first met her during that business with the Autons. Rose had said that she'd found a website all about the doctor and the TARDIS, a website run by a man in his fifties named Clive, which would have made him about 14 in 1979, just like the lad the doctor had taken to Loch Ness. It couldn't have been him, could it? The doctor shook his head. Perhaps he was remembering it wrong. Perhaps that website had been run by a man called Chris or Clint. The doctor sighed and thought of some wise words a friend of his had once written. Time is the thief of memory. How true, he thought as his magical ship slipped between the present and the past, between tomorrow and yesterday, between the not-yet-now and the not-quite-then. Time is infinite, but memory is not. All memories fade in time.